Our guest today has one of the most inspiring life stories full of adventure and trials and triumphs that we'll discuss today. He spent 34 years in the Marine Corps, 14 years as a member of the NASA Astronaut Office. He flew to space four times, commanding two of those missions and piloting two of those shuttle missions. And in 2009, he became the first ever African-American NASA administrator. And we barely scratched the surface of his life story. I am so grateful to introduce the one and only Charlie Bolin. <laughs> Thanks, Mary Liz. So it's so it's so nice to be here with you. And I, uh, it's been an interesting journey to get to this time with you. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and that's that's really what I want to talk about today is your super inspiring journey. Um, I'm just curious when people introduce you in the way that I just introduced you. And they just wrap you up into a couple paragraphs. Do you ever listen to that and think, my God, how did I get here? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm frequently asked how I got here. So I think about it a lot. And, and my journey here was uh, not at all what I planned. So this is not where I plan to be on this particular day. You know, if you're when people ask me what what's the most important thing about introducing me, I tell them that most important thing is to tell them that I'm a proud grandfather of three beautiful girls. And uh, that's the only thing that counts. Mm -hmm. My son and daughter are both very successful in their own right. My son's a, a retired Marine now. Uh, so he spent 26 years in the Marine Corps, also in aviation as I was. My daughter's a plastic surgeon uh, practicing in the Washington DC area. So she she's a partner in a dermatology plastic surgery firm and also a part-time plastic surgeon at Howard University Hospital. Wow. So um, so my wife and I are, are pretty blessed with the, the children, the two children and the three incredible grandchildren that we have. But as I said, this was not where I was supposed to be. I was, um, my intention growing up in segregated Columbia, South Carolina was to go to the Naval Academy because I had seen a program on television about the Naval Academy when I was in seventh grade called Men of Annapolis. And I wanted to go there just because I was enamored by the uniform and other kinds of things. And I was going to spend five years in the Navy, get out, go back to graduate school, get a, uh, a degree in electrical engineering and go make money. So <laughs> that was my plan. None of that happened. All right. I got a degree, but it wasn't in electrical engineering. <laughs> well, I, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about this because my favorite fact that I've only just recently learned about you is. It happened when you were very, very young and you had you had this dream to go to the Naval Academy. You were in your teens, you were in high school, mm -hmm. and you were blocked from getting your first appointment for yeah. that. I would really like for you to tell this story because sure. I find it incredibly inspiring. <laughs> no, I, as I mentioned, I, I didn't mention my age, but when I first saw Men of Annapolis, I was 12. I was a seventh grader um, in Columbia, South Carolina, and I fell in, just fell in love with the Naval Academy based on everything I saw as a part of that series. It was a, you know, I think I watched it for years after it came on that back then military shows were kind of popular. Yeah. And uh, so I started writing to my congressman and my two state senators and the vice president of the United States, because those were the sources of appointment to the Naval Academy for somebody like me. And um, every year I would get a letter back that said, hey, it's a little early. 
kind of chill out, my words, uh, and write us when you're a senior in high school. And, uh, and But the thing was, I, I knew that it was going to be difficult, so I wanted them to know who I was. And I would explain, I just want you to know who I am because my senior year, you're probably going to wonder who the heck is this guy, and I want to be able to to let you know that I'm that I'm really serious about this. <laughs> and uh, my senior year rolled around. Um, I applied to my two state senators, who are Strom Thurmond, uh, who is infamous, uh, and Olin D. Johnston, somewhat less known. Uh, my my congressional representative was Albert Watson, and so I applied to the three of them as I should, and then I applied to Vice President Lyndon Johnson because. Every kid in America is eligible for a vice presidential appointment. I got the letters back from the from the congressional members saying no way, uh, not going to appoint a black to the to the academy. And so I, that didn't bother me because I, I kind of anticipated that. So I was really counting on a vice presidential appointment. And then um, November twenty second of my senior year, um, I was my football team was on it on our way to Charleston, South Carolina to play for the state championship and. And we learned that President Kennedy had been assassinated. Uh, and for me, that was that my world stopped because and it was selfish. Uh, not only had we lost the president, who we all loved, but I had lost any hope of going to the Naval Academy because I knew that Vice President Johnson was going to become president and I wasn't eligible for a presidential appointment. So so my one contact that I had been talking to for years was now lo- no longer available to me. And uh, but I said, you know, what the heck, I'll write the president, uh, you know, now that he's the president. So I, I pulled out pen and paper and I wrote a letter and I, I said, Mr. President, you know, this is me. It's Charlie Bolden, Charles, because I wasn't Charlie back then. <laughs> you know, it's Charles Bolden again. And I still I really, really, really want to go to the Naval Academy. And um, and I've been writing you a number of years and I'm not eligible for a presidential appointment, but I need help. And I never heard from him. But uh, within weeks, a Navy recruiter knocked on my front door. Um, and a couple of weeks after that, a retired federal judge went around the country looking for qualified uh, African-American men to uh, go to the service academies. President Johnson sent him out, combing the country, looking for people. And I ended up getting an appointment uh, out of that from Congressman William Dawson in Chicago, Illinois, who was also uh, African-American. He was, in fact, um, at the time, I want to say he was one of the very few members of Congress who was of color. Uh, he had served in the Army in World War II when he had to battle to get into the Army himself because the military at that time was segregated. So um, I, I guess he felt sorry for me. So he gave me an appointment to the academy. Oh. <laughs> so that's how I got there. Oh, wow. I, I mean, I, I I was reading that and I was trying to think of myself as yeah. a teenager in high school and, you know, I had some tumultuous times and some extreme, like, you know, defeating moments. And I just remember what it was like to be a teenager and to be told, no, you can't. And, and that defiant feeling of, yes, I can, you can't tell me what I can't do. And I just wonder, uh, where does that come from? What is that in Um, you? I think it comes from my mom and dad. I, I tell people all the time, my first role models and my um, my idols, as a matter of fact, and, and my mentors were my mom and dad. They were both teachers. My father was my high school football coach, and he coached and uh, taught all of his life. Uh, in fact, he was the athletic director at, at a rival high school of ours when he passed away. Um, when I was... Um, I was... My application was in... I was serving as a test pilot 
and my application was in for the astronaut program, but he never got, he never, he did not live to see me accepted into the astronaut program. Mm. Um, and then my mother was a librarian and she started out at the elementary school level. She founded the first library for black children in, in South Carolina wow. and then went on to be a middle school librarian and then high school. And when the schools were integrated in the sixties, late sixties, she was selected to be the first black librarian to go into a formerly all white school. So she went to Dreer High School, which was one of the big premier high schools in our hometown. And uh, so that was that was my mom and dad. And my father had a saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. Mm, I like uh, that. And both both of them always told us we my my brother and me, they told us we could do anything we wanted to as long as we wanted as we were willing to work hard and study hard and uh, and just go after it. And so that's that's kind of where it came from. That's everything, isn't it? It's um, it's the I, I just I, I ache for the kids today that don't have that kind of role model yeah. or that person in their young life that yeah. fosters yeah. that in them, because I think that's something that lives inside all of us. We're humans. That's what yeah. we do. Right. But um, for those who who don't have that at a young age, I think it's just it takes a long time. It's a more of a trial yeah. to get there. But, yeah, and not very many people are self-made. I, I I have a lot of friends who who say that I'm self-made. I, I am not. <laughs> uh, it took a lot, uh, as as Hillary Clinton said in her book, "It takes a village." I'm I'm the product of a of a lot of villages. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we all are. I think that's just it. Yeah. Um, you you actually said you have a beautiful quote I recently came across from one of your NASA speeches. You said of NASA. Our missions demand decades, even generational planning. But beyond technical milestones, the legacy was, we must pass on is inspiration. And yeah. I just want to apply this to your life right now. And we'll get to NASA in a minute. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll get there. But yeah. I just, as I was kind of studying your legacy, um, I, I pulled out. And these, I don't like that word. By I'm the way. sorry. <laughs> no, no. Give I me just, a better I, word. You know. No, I I don't have a better word. I I'm not a I'm not a big legacy. I, I just I'm not a big legacy person. You're a very humble I, person. I, <laughs> no, I've, I've been blessed, and I and I I understand that perfectly well. So yeah. that's why you know it's not anything that I deserve. It's just things that that I've been able to do. I I tell people all the time. I am an ordinary person who has been blessed to have had an opportunity to do extraordinary things. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that I was just lucky to be in the right, right place at the right time, many times. You know, I actually, um, I was just talking in my last interview to someone who's a science rapper. He's absolutely amazing. His name is Graydon Square. And he was, he said uh -huh. something that kind of, um, put, it set me back for a second because, you know, I've spent the last couple of years interviewing astronauts and becoming friends with all of the people in the space industry and, um, you know, I have a saying, never normalize. That's my saying, but I kind of accidentally yeah. did, you know, and I realized it when he said, wow, you know, it's so weird to hear you talk about these people like this because, you know, most of us think of them as these kind of superheroes, you know, and I think, um, yeah. what I love to do is to bring the human out of the superhero story out of that hero journey and and yeah. showcase it so that people understand that this is not reserved for a special few. This is something that lives inside all of us and that there are qualities that um, that you bring out 
and and they live, you know, they are innate. And I, the three qualities mm. that kind of kept coming to me as I was, you know, researching what you'd done in your story. And it feels like what's gotten you through a lot of those trials is grit, determination, and perseverance. These are the main mm. Would you agree? <laughs> I, I would. But th but again, that came from my dinner table. That came from my mom and dad. You know, my uh, father served in the Army in World War II. Um, I, I tell people all the time, like the Tuskegee Airmen and the Montford Point Marines, he had to fight for the right to defend the country. Mm. Uh, he went he went through, through Army training, through boot camp, right in our hometown, Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And, and he served in an all-black unit, both in... They started in Europe and ended up in Northern Africa and stuff like that. And, and when he and, and his, uh, my brother, my, my mother's brothers, my father and my mother's, my my wife's father uh, were all in the same unit. So they, they, wow. they all stayed in the army together. My father was drafted in 1941. He, he graduated from college in 1940, taught for one year, was drafted and came home at the end of the war, came home in 1945. And I was born the next year. So they they were driven. And you know, they they had to, uh, they had to kind of fend for themselves and, and make their own ways. And then when they came back, um, it was as if they hadn't done anything, because they were back in the South back being black. Yeah. Uh, and it you know, this soldier stuff didn't make any difference. Uh, they were still harassed and and uh, and abused and everything. Oh, that breaks my heart. And no, and, I don't let it. It's it, that's I. It, it, and one of the things that I have that I have learned over these last few weeks and months is um, nobody should feel sorry for anything. I mean, and uh, and I, I I got this this angry man, whatever it is. But I saw a little girl, and I think she was five or six. Um, you know, marching in DC and she had a sign and the, the sign said, the system is not broken. Uh, this is the way it was made. And it's really important for us to understand that the system in which we live is the system that the founding fathers gave us. If they wanted it to be different, uh, you would have been voting yeah. uh, or your ancestors, women would have been voting. I would have been a whole person and not three-fifths or four-fifths or whatever it was. They built a bad system, a broken system. And as President Obama says a lot of time, our challenge is to always strive for a more perfect union. Mm -hmm. They had the right idea, and I think they meant well, but uh, you have to remember where they were and what they were doing. I mean, slavery was a, that was a thing. And uh, I, so I, 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 don't, I don't want anybody to feel sorry. I want people to feel like let's get the let's get down to work and yeah. and let's make the system right. We know what it ought to be like, so let's just do that. En enough talking. Yes. Let's, let's make the system right. I'm 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 right there with you. Um, yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> I know that you say this about science and space in general. This is how I feel about science and space: is that it's this amazingly unifying force, like nothing else yep. that I've seen. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. and it and it shows us the reality that we are all in this together that we are all floating in space with one shared destiny now how do we integrate that into practical everyday action yeah, yeah. you know so i'm ready i'm ready to get to work and uh, yeah. i you know i'm glad that these new the 
I'm glad that right now, even though it's uncomfortable that everything is coming to the surface, but at least yeah. now it's like, oh, okay, everybody's aware. That's the first step, right? Yeah. All right, let's take some action. It's going to take grit. <laughs> it's going to take mm -hmm. determination. It's going to take perseverance. It's Re not going to happen overnight. You know, it's, this has been a long time coming and a long time in the making. Um, so on that subject, you know, I, a lot of people, I, I actually heard you speaking to this uh, recently in another interview. Um, a lot of people are equating what's going on today to what was going on in the 60s. And yeah. you had probably the most unique or a very holistic view of anyone I know. You had the most holistic view of yeah. what was going on then. Because I had a ringside seat. <laughs> you did. So yeah. Yeah. just so people are aware, can you talk about where you were at? You, you fought in Vietnam on yeah. combat uh, missions. And, you know, obviously you and your family were likely involved in uh, the battle for civil rights here at home. Yeah. And then, of course, we were in the midst of a space race. Can you talk about the juxtaposition yeah. and what that was like for you? Yeah, I am. Um, I one of the reasons that I tell people I'm I'm an eternal optimist, although one of my my priests recently told me that the eternal optimist, that's just another word for faith. So I guess mm -hmm. I'm a person of faith. But mm -hmm. but um, having been through the six, the 50s and 60s, I I was born in 46. Uh, so I came into the 50s when the civil rights movement really kind of got started. It, it was started a long time before that, but people got really serious. And then when we moved into the 60s, I, I graduated from high school in 1964. And it was 1964, shortly after Kennedy's assassination, that President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 64. The next year, they had the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So things were happening uh, in very rapid order. And I, I, I tell people, I say, you know, I remember my senior year in high school, uh, we went through assassinations, lynchings, um, uh, demonstrations in the street, both for civil rights and against the war. And uh, when I came out of the Naval Academy in 1968, we were going through demonstrations and lynchings and battles for civil rights and against the war in the streets, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the fighting in the streets was, as you mentioned, it was twofold. Some people were there just wanting to get their, their civil rights and, and others were there because they have, they opposed the war. Mm -hmm. And frequently they ended up together uh, because the common enemy, if you want to put it that way, was the government that was, they were the ones that were, the government was the one, the organization that was supposed to allow all this stuff to happen and get us out of endless wars and and they weren't doing that and so that was really what was going on in, in my time in the 60s and now you come full circle uh we're back to doing that again and it's civil rights and it's and it's endless wars and it's like holy gee uh i i thought we had done all this stuff before so why why are we back here again um but but that's sort of uh when i say i had a ringside seat in the 60s and now i now I have a little older ringside seat here in the 2020s. Yeah. And I was just curious if um, when you came back from Vietnam, did you experience additional um, discrimination, if you will, or, or were you oh, respected? You mean, uh, discrimination and bias and stuff? Mm -hmm. Mostly. No, 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 no. Okay. When I, uh, if you're too young, <laughs> you know, you're too young, but... Uh, uh, 
it was interesting to watch because I was still in the military when we when we when President Bush the the senior uh, you know took us into the Middle East and we fought a very short war and everybody came home and we were all heroes and people marched down Pennsylvania Avenue and there was a big parade and people clapped and they were happy. That did not happen coming home from Vietnam. Right. Coming home from Vietnam, you might you somebody might spit on you, somebody might throw stuff at you. Um, it, that was not a very popular war and anybody who fought in it was not a very popular person. So there, there weren't a lot of people here in the U.S. who were bending over backwards to make a Vietnam veteran feel good. And, uh, and so a lot of my friends and my, uh, my squadron mates and the like, you know, some of them never did recover. Uh, and some of us were very fortunate in that we, our skin was a little bit thicker or whatever. And we, we had other things that we felt we needed to do to try to make things right. And, mm. and we kept going at it. Yeah, I think that has something to do with the grit or the determination is that there is some mm. kind of overarching goal that keeps you on your path yeah. and one foot forward. What, what was that for you? Well, I don't, I don't know that there's anything special. Um, I think one of the things you know, at least I know um, from experience is <clears throat> when I walk into a room as a black man, uh, half the people in the room, if they don't know me, they're wondering why the hell I'm there. Uh, you know, I, I used to love to go into the White House. Uh, and uh, I, as a as a sub cabinet official, that meant I didn't I was not a member of the president's cabinet. But every once in a while, if we were doing something about small business or or women's issues, or there were certain things that President Obama would have them get on the phone and say, hey, get your butt over here. <laughs> and uh, I want you to sit in on this cabinet meeting. And, and you'd go and you'd, you'd walk into the cabinet room and people would look at you strange, uh, you know, as if to, with all the, all the women and, and minorities that Obama had in his cabinet, there were still people who did not know me and would look at me and you could tell on their face, they were wondering, what the, why are you here? You know, what, what, what right do you have to be here? And and I just go make myself comfortable. And as they went around and introduced people, or you introduced yourself, you could look at people's faces when when I was introduced as the NASA administrator. And and people mm -hmm. have a hard time not saying you're an astronaut, which which I hate because mm -hmm. that kind of that kind of breaks people down. Mm -hmm. And and then they're not real anymore because mm -hmm. now, like you said before, you've gone into the superhero status, and I don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. I want to be I want to be a contributing member of the team, somebody who is respected because of what I present or or the knowledge that I have. And, and I don't I think sometimes it's very difficult to overcome this aura of being an astronaut because people then they make assumptions that, you know, a lot of stuff and everything else. And people tend to not want to disagree with you or they don't want to tell you. I, I use the term they don't want to tell you your baby's ugly. <laughs> uh, which, you know, but anyway, um, I, I, I really, everywhere I go, ever since I've been in charge, um, one of the first things I tell people is, look, I don't have all the answers. I am not the smartest person in the room. I have never been the smartest person in the room and I like it that way, but I try to surround myself with really smart people. And, and I, I implore them. I said, look, if I say something that's stupid, I'm representing you. So please do not let me leave this room. Uh, having said something that's wrong, correct me in here. And then when I go out to, to represent you, because as the NASA administrator, um, I was the face and voice of the agency. I represented 18,000 
civil servants and 40,000 contractors. And the last thing I wanted to do was to go out and misrepresent them mm -hmm. or make them not look good because they had this guy who's at the top who didn't have a clue what he was talking about. <laughs> so I always told him, I said, look, I'm going to go out here and speak for you. If you want, if you want to, you want people to respect you and respect what we do, don't let me walk out of here not knowing what I'm talking about. So, so tell me I'm full of crap. Uh, I can handle that. My skin is not, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Just tell me and we'll get it straight. So I, I don't know whether that's grit or determination or what, but I think a, a part of it is being, being able or willing or desirous of having people just be blunt with you and tell you you're wrong or that's humility yeah, that's humility it's not not quite not quite right you were close but <laughs> here's the way you really ought to do it so yeah i think that's humility and i think that's something that we yeah. um that's something that we so desperately need to incorporate in our culture today i think that that is yeah, you're you're being kind you're you're oh, no. trying to no. you're, you're talking about the leadership of the country right now and <laughs> yeah. i believe i mean as an american citizen i want someone leading my country or leading me who is strong mm -hmm. uh but humble mm -hmm. um you know self-assured but self ingratiating or not that's a bad word bad that's not the appropriate word but but self-effacing, I guess, is the right. I should not be using these words that, you know, but I think you know what I mean. Somebody who does not, um, they understand that they're normal and uh, they're, they're put into a position that's an abnormal or one of these super normal positions, but they're a normal person and they're going to do the absolute best they can. And I think that's what that's what the country's just crying for right now and the people for whom i feel sorry are those that don't know that that's what they need mm -hmm. uh you know people who just blindly follow um for some reason and i have no idea what that reason is but uh but every day i think we become more and more hungry for somebody who is strong and exhibits strong personality but but humility as you as you pointed out yeah, I think it's it's required for good leadership, and right now we we yeah. are so desperate for leadership in many ways. Yeah. Um, courageable. Now you're going to get a whole crap, a whole lot of stuff you <laughs> know. Know, for this discussion you and I are having. <laughs> that's all right, Especially, you know. You know, being being down there on the space coast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you know what? I the the thing that's missing right now is is conversation. That is the missing piece, and I don't care what anybody. Um, I don't care how anybody votes. I don't care what it is they believe. We all fundamentally want and need and desire the same yeah. things. And yeah. if we can all just get on the same page about where we have things in common and then approach our conversations with respect and compassion and curiosity, yeah. then we'll go so much further. So I, I never want to come at anybody thinking, you know, it's, it's that humility thing. It's like, I don't have the answers, but we're not yeah. going to have, no one's going to have the right answers. No one yeah. and no one party, yeah. no one, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think what, what is happening right now is I'm seeing divides widen because we're not talking and everybody's kind of afraid to talk. And so I'm trying my hardest not to be afraid to talk anymore. Well, <laughs> I'm know? like you, um, in that I, and I, I always try to explain to people, look, there are a couple of things I, I just want you to do. One is 
communicate with me. Mm -hmm. uh, if you disagree with what I say, just let me know. And then we can, if we can establish a dialogue, we can, we cannot solve a problem if we don't admit that we have a problem. That's, that's thing number one. And the mm -hmm. second thing is the most important thing in our democratic, in, in our system of government is you have got to vote. I really don't care who you vote for. Mm -hmm. I hope that, you know, through reason and other mm -hmm. kinds of things, you're going to support the same person I am. But if you don't, that's okay. What I'm looking for is a, is a country in which 100% of the people who have the right to vote, the right to vote is something that people gave their lives for. Mm -hmm. And it really burns me up to see people who don't exercise the right to vote, particularly somebody of color mm -hmm. or a woman who says, I just, I'm not going to vote because I don't like either. You don't have that choice. Mm -hmm. You got to make up your mind because people died for you to have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And yeah, is it hard? You bet it is. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But go out and talk to somebody and find out why it is you don't like that person or why it is you don't like that person. But you got to find, I mean, it's it, the world is not black and white. The mm -hmm. world is nuanced. And so we've got to go out and get people to help us understand the the nuance and all this stuff. Yeah, and and you even talked about it earlier about um, wanting to hear other perspectives when yeah. you were in those important leadership meetings, yeah. and and that's what we all need right now. So rather than shutting yeah. it off or curating our feeds to be perfectly in tune with what our biases are, what we want to yeah. hear, we have to get those nuanced discussions going. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm trying to be way more open and talk about these things as much as possible. And I don't care <laughs> yeah, what anybody too. says. Yeah, I want yeah, them to yeah. come say it to me. Yeah. Um, so just to quickly time travel back, because you know we talked about some of the the extreme turmoil of the '60s and your unique yeah. perspective in that. But what about uh, the moment? Do you remember the moment? of the moon landing? Do you remember the moment Ooh, that Apollo 8? Tell, tell me about the yeah. moment. No, you know, I, I, I remember them vividly because I was not a, one of those people who wanted to be an astronaut. Oh. I grew up and, it, and I will compare myself with the, with my, my, the person who is responsible for my, my sitting here having this conversation with you is the late great Dr. Ron McNair. And um, mm -hmm. you may know the name, but Ron McNair was one of the three blacks in the first group of space shuttle astronauts. Um, Ron grew up about 42 miles from me in a place called Lake City, South Carolina. And uh, But the difference, Ron was a little bit younger than I was. The difference between Ron and me was Ron, that's all he wanted to do was become an astronaut. And so his whole life was set on doing the things that were needed to be able to become an astronaut if and when the opportunity arose. There were no black astronauts. There were no one but test pilots when he had this vision of becoming an astronaut. But when the opportunity presented itself, you know, he had taught himself calculus and physics as a high schooler. Uh, he had gone to North Carolina A&T, which was a historically black college in Greensboro, North Carolina, and majored in physics, gotten accepted to MIT and earned a, a, a doctorate in laser physics and became one of the world's foremost laser physicists, and then applied for the space program and was selected. So he fulfilled his dream. I didn't have that dream. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, the only thing I wanted to do was go to the Naval Academy. I wanted <laughs> to put on that uniform. And, and so our, our idea about what was going to be successful for us were diametrically opposed, to be quite honest. And you might even say my wife was marching in the streets when I was at the Naval Academy, uh, you know, going through marching 
up and down trying to learn how to carry a rifle. <laughs> so even even my wife and me were on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, if wow. you will. Um, I was not a I was in the struggle, but I was not a part of the struggle back then because I wasn't out on the street like they were. I was in a different kind of fight, um, trying to make sure that people would be able to follow me. Because when I got to the Naval Academy, um, there were seven in my class out of 1,400. And we ended up with four at the end of the first year. And the four of us stuck together and graduated and and remained friends until we started dying off. And there, mm. you know, there are two of us, there are three of us left now. Wow. Um, but there weren't a lot of Blacks at the Naval Academy when I got there. And you talked earlier about things, people putting up roadblocks and, and they make you angry and you say, okay, I'll show you. Mm -hmm. I did not want to be it after, after struggling to get to the Naval Academy. When I got there, I hated it. I mean, I thought it was, it was, it was too hard. People didn't want me there. Uh, you know, they, although the, the ground, the yard itself, the Naval Academy was integrated, but nothing around it was the city of Annapolis was, mm -hmm. was as segregated as it had ever been. The whole state of Maryland was segregated. You could go to Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States for, for all intents and purposes was, was segregated. And uh, and I just, you know, I, I, I would cry to my mom and dad every weekend. And I say, I want to come home. I don't want to I don't want to be here. I made a mistake. I mean, big mistake. Wow. My dad would say, hang in there one more week. And I'd say, but I don't want to be here. He said, hang in there one more week. And and so I hung in there one more week for 52 weeks and uh, made wow. it through plea beer. But I think the one thing, if, if I identify one thing, and I'll get back to the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. I didn't forget. You were asking me about landing on the moon in Apollo 8. <laughs> but the one thing that probably put me over the hump or was um, one night, uh, I think it must have been midway through my plea beer, my freshman year, and the door opened and it was two white guys who walked in and my company, and, um, and one was from South Carolina, the other one was from Alabama. And um, and so they said, Mr. Bolden, um, how are you doing tonight? I said, I'm doing well. And they said, well, um, you're not going to get through here. I said, what do you mean? They said, you're not going to you're not going to get through here. You're not going to make it through plebe year. And I said, what makes you think that <laughs> we're not going to let you get through here? Mm. And I said, oh, is that right? And I said, well, we'll we'll see about that. And, and they walked out of the room, I guess, feeling pretty good about themselves. But it was that one thing that, like you said, that was a spark. I still didn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. But I said, I'll be damned. I am not going to let those two guys run me out of here. So I said, you know, I'll stay until until the end of this year. But they are not going to run me out of here. And had they left me alone, um, there's no telling what might have happened. I, I mean, if you know, I might have gone home. I might have just told my mom and dad, okay, forget it. I'm getting on a train and I'm coming south. I'm wow. coming back home. But, but that, that night, that night sealed the deal for me. I said, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the irony is I've, I've seen those two guys off and on. Uh, uh, I outranked both of them when I, no you know, when, when, when I retired from the Marine Corps and, uh, wow. and the, I don't know whether they remember that night or not, but, but I see them and smile and I said, you know, God has a way of doing things. So oh, that had to feel, okay. that had to feel pretty good. <laughs> but going back the night of the moon landing, I was a student in flight school. I was, yeah. um, I was in what was called basic jet training in Meridian, of all places, Meridian, Mississippi. Mm. 
Wow. And Meridian, Mississippi was everything you, you can think about back then. We had, uh, you know, the, the, they had bombed a synagogue the night that my wife and I got into town. Uh, so that was, that was the height of the civil rights era. Uh, but, but we had been down to new Orleans for a good weekend and we rushed back to sit in the bachelor officers quarters with friends and watch the moon landing. And it was stunning. It was absolutely mesmerizing. It was unlike anything that, that I'd ever seen, unlike anything that I had anticipated. And I was, I mean, I was bursting with pride that that humanity had done this that that americans had done this and that we had done this at a time that we were in the streets fighting against each other but but we had been able to come together and make it possible for humanity to land on the moon mm-hmm. and uh, and that stuck with me and then the other thing before that though was was the apollo 8 mission you know christmas time coming around the moon and and what i consider to be the image that began the environmental movement was was the first earth rise and um that was i mean that was just breathtaking just that image of our planet from that vantage point um and it, it just those two things those those two parts of the space of the apollo program were things that that really stuck with me the the earth rise image that told us about the fragility of this little blue marble on which we live and then landing on the moon in the height of everything else that was going on, just violence in the streets and everything else. And yet we all stopped long enough to watch this incredible achievement. So who wow. fig- go figure. I, I, I think a lot. I, I think a lot about what it must have been like to be the first of humans to see the oh, yeah. earth oh, yeah. for the first time. I just can't, I cannot imagine looking no, they, at the um, television. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and 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 to just experience the beauty of the planet, and that's something that I I really want to get to is. Um, but first, I don't I don't want to jump ahead. There's a there's a critical part of this story <laughs> before we get too ahead of ourselves. Um, okay. <laughs> where you you did finally decide to apply to NASA. I did. Uh, I was embarrassed into it. Yes, I, I love this story. story. I want this story. Yeah, I actually, I my my journey becoming a marine and a pilot is also kind of strange because those were the two things I was not going to do coming out of high school. But the person who impressed me the most when I got when I got to the Naval Academy was my first company officer, and that was the single commissioned officer who had responsibility for about 150 of us in a company. The way that's the way the Naval Academy was organized. And he was incredibly tough, but unbelievably fair. He was just like my dad. Mm. And, uh, and he reminded me of my dad a lot. And, and four years later, when it was time to graduate, and I had to decide what I wanted to do, I looked back and I said, you know, I could do anything I want to. I want to be like him, and, mm. which was really strange because the Tet Offensive had, you know, had, had occurred in 1967. I was graduating in 1968. The life expectancy of a Marine second lieutenant uh, infantry officer was not very high, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like him. And so I accepted my commission in the Marine Corps. And I got to, to doing the training and everything. And I found out I did not like crawling around in the mud. And uh, so my wife kept saying, because I married my wife three days after we graduated, she kept saying, don't want you to be a Marine in the first place. But if you're going to do that, why don't we go to flight school? And mm. I said, I don't want to fly airplanes. And she kept insisting and she was persistent. And when I found out I did not like crawling around in the mud, 
that seemed like, what the heck, let's go to flight school. And I did and uh, fell in love with it. First time I got in an airplane and we took off. And one thing led to another. I, one of my flight instructors who impressed me was a test pilot. And we talked about that. And so that became a goal of mine. And I eventually uh, got accepted to test pilot school. And I got there and I was, I was, I was very successful. And that was when NASA selected the first group of space shuttle astronauts in 1978. Mm. And um, they came, a lot of them who had been through the Navy's test pilot program came back for a reunion to Patuxent River, Maryland. And uh, and one of the young men who came with them was Dr. Ron McNair, this, this little geeky looking kid, you know, <laughs> with big hair and everything else. And he had hopped in the back seat with, with one of the Navy pilots and had come back and and uh, I saw him get out of the airplane and went over and introduced myself. And we talked the whole weekend. And at the end of the weekend, when he was getting ready to go back to Houston, he said, hey, are you going to apply for the program? And I looked at him matter of fact, I said, not on your life. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, not on your life. He said, why not? I said, they never picked me. Hmm. And I just said it like that. He said, you know, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. He said, how do you know if you don't ask? And he made me feel about that big, about the size of a little ant or something. <laughs> Because I had forgotten everything my mom and dad had taught me mm. about you can do anything you want to do. And uh, and I was embarrassed. And so when he flew back to Houston, I went and got pen and pad and told my wife what I was going to do. And I applied and I got nominated by the Marine Corps to NASA and invited to come to Houston for an interview and ended up uh, getting selected in the second group of space shuttle astronauts. So that's the way I stumbled into the program. And, <laughs> and I, um, you know, not, not, not any long-term plan or any lifelong, lifelong desire or anything. So, so what I was did, very fortunate to get to that. What did your wife think about that? Because it seems like it may have come out of nowhere yeah, for her too, right? It, it did. It did. It did. It, she, she just kind of, I, you know, I never did ask her what she thought when I told her I was going to do that. But she just said, okay, whatever. Uh, and I think, because she had gotten me to go to flight school and, mm. and she really, she had enjoyed by then we had been, um, we'd been on, I'd been on active duty in the Marine Corps for, I want to say about 12 years by then. Mm. So, you know, she had, I'd been to Vietnam and back, uh, I'd been through test pilot school. We had <laughs> lost friends and, mm. uh, you know, in the test community and everything. So, so the risks involved with flying and especially test piloting, uh, you know, I don't know that she even thought about it, to be quite honest. And and wow. when I mentioned the fact that I was going to apply for the space program, it I don't think it I don't think she thought about it, to be quite honest. And, it, and it, she she enjoyed it when we first went there, and our kids loved it. But over time, with each flight, since my first flight occurred in January of 1986, and uh, we landed, we launched on the 12th, landed on the 18th, and on the 28th, we lost Challenger and mm. and the whole crew, to include Ron McNair. So my mm. inspiration, my role model, my mm. everything was lost 10 days after I came back from space. And um, wow. so that was a that was a big decision making time for us as a family. And I it didn't take me very long to decide this was where I, this was where I belong. You know, and I I can't leave because I owe it to Ron and I owe it to the rest of the crew to, to get this thing right. And, and, and we did. And uh, I flew three more times. But each flight became more and more difficult for my family. And they finally sat me down after my third flight and they said, okay. When I, when I told them I wanted to fly a fourth time, they, they sat me down and they said, okay, what do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, that is literally what they asked me. And, wow. 
I, you know, I think my son was uh, maybe he was getting ready to graduate from the Naval Academy. Our daughter was on her way to Spelman, and uh, but they said, "Okay, what do you what do you want to do when you grow up?" Hmm. And ironically, I got a call in the middle of my training from the superintendent of the Naval Academy, and uh, which is like the president of the university. Wow. And and he he was a friend, um, and uh, and since my son was there, then I I had gotten to know him because my son struggled like I did, mm. and uh, he he called he said hey I got a question for you he said um, what do you want to do when you grow up and I said I'm a Lynch <laughs> you know it, it's ironic that you asked me this because my family just sat me down the other day and they asked me the identical question he said okay what'd you tell him I said I told him I didn't know. Um, he said, well, i tell you what, I think you've flown enough when you come back from this flight. You ought to think about doing something other than going to space. And would you be interested in coming back to the Naval Academy uh, and serving as the Deputy Commandant of Midshipmen, which is like the Vice Dean of Students in a civilian school. And I was enamored by the idea. You know, I had hated the Academy when I was there, and I, I had no desire to ever go back again. But over time, with everything, uh, kind of grows on you, and I became very proud of where I had, where I'd gone to school and where I'd come from, and I felt it was time for me to give something back. Mm. And so I checked with the Marine Corps to find out if they would if they would be okay with me accepting a pretty prestigious position because it was like the you were like the third person in the in the order of who's in charge at the Naval Academy, and uh, so the wow. Commandant of Marine Corps said, "Hey, if they'll if they'll pick you, take it." Because wow. it'll make the Marine Corps look really good. Yeah, so there you go. And, and we went there and we spent one year and I got promoted out of my job because I, I was selected for Brigadier General after my first year there. And that, that meant I couldn't stay because the, my boss would have been junior to me. <laughs> so we got sent out to the West Coast. and We spent another eight, nine years on active duty in the Marine Corps and traveled. My, you know, kids were, were grown or growing and uh, we traveled around the world. We lived in Tokyo for two years. I lived in Kuwait for a year. Uh, I had been in Thailand before. So so it gave us an opportunity to kind of see different places around the world. And, and we loved it and finally decided it was time to get out and go do something else. And I retired in 2003 and we moved back to Texas. Wow. And you're still in Houston. Is that right? No, I, we live in we live in the Washington, D.C. area. We live oh. in, in a place called Crystal City. It's It's, out, yeah. it's Arlington. So Got we're it. right across the 14th Street Bridge. We we lived for seven years in uh, Mount Vernon, right down by the George Washington Estate. Mm. And uh, we loved it. We had a beautiful house on the river and mm. finally decided last year that we'd had enough of secluded living. We wanted to get back to where people were, where <laughs> we could walk to places. And so we sold our house and bought a condo. And, wow. Uh, and so now we live back in city life, if you will. Yeah. So, But it puts us around our kids because our son... Retired from the Marine Corps. He was at the Pentagon at the time, and he decided to stay in the D.C. area. So the whole family, the whole Golden Clan, is right there in the D.C. area. Oh, that has to be so nice. And you're you're it's at your awesome. son's your son's house right now, right? We're at our son's beach oh. house right now. Oh. I don't have a beach house, but, but my I son like and it. his wife are successful enough that they have a <laughs> beautiful home down here on it in Emerald Island, North Carolina. So we're in the. Oof. It's just. I want to say it's just down from the Outer Banks or up from the Outer Banks. Not very far from Kitty Hawk, you know, where the Wright brothers. Yeah. So wow. It's a, it's a beautiful part of the country, and we love being there. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm really, really interested. I 
you know, when I reached out to you, I told you that this is part of my mission. And what really drew me <laughs> to you was um, I saw you speak at IAC during the ASE panel and Leland Melvin oh. moderated that. Yeah. yeah. And he, his first question to you shocked me because I'm not used to people talking publicly about the overview effect. Yeah. But I, I just, I would love to know, um, because I've, I've, done a lot of research. I'm writing a book about it. I, um, mm. you know, I've interviewed many astronauts and I find that it's an extremely unique and personal experience and it's very different for everyone and it happens at different times for everyone. So I loved the answer that you gave that day. And I just love for you to talk about the first time that you went to space. And I know that there, there's those shuttle missions. I know were very, very busy so maybe you can kind of take us through that first launch day yeah. and then that first time gazing at Earth. And yeah. when did you have that big yeah. uh-huh. you know, I never, I had never heard the term overview effect until recently, but, but, I, but I know what they mean. But, but for me, um, I talked about my, my um, just being mesmerized by the, the Apollo 8 Earth rise. Mm-hmm. And uh, so being an, a person of African descent, I had spent a lot of time in my preparation for my first flight studying the geography of Africa because mm. I I didn't know exactly where my ancestors, which of the countries, the West African countries had come from, but I wanted to be able to look down and kind of say, okay, there's Nigeria, there's this and that. And, and so I had, I had really done well with my geography, I thought. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you launch, when you go to space, uh, when you finally go, because we didn't launch until our fifth attempt, we we uh, we went 14 wow. seconds, 14 seconds, 31 seconds, two hours uh, in a driving rainstorm like you had earlier today. Wow. And then we finally launched on the fifth attempt and everything went great. But wow. um, but it you've trained so hard and so long for this. Technically, you are incredibly well prepared and ready. Um, but it all happened so quickly. You know, you've, you've done all these years of training. And in eight and a half minutes, it's over. The, the part that you spend the most training time on. Uh, that's all it takes you to get to space. So in eight mm-hmm. and a half minutes, you've gone through this shaking and, <laughs> and all that stuff. And you're going 17,500 miles an hour and you're in space. And, uh, and the feeling of um, uh, having overcome gravity, because gravity is still there, but because you're going so fast, mm-hmm. then you get the sensation that you're floating, although you're constantly trying to fall back to Earth. But um, but because you're going so fast, once every 90 minutes, you go around the planet. And uh, so about, eh, I want to say, 15 minutes into the flight, 10 or 15 minutes, shortly after the main engines cut off and we, we knew we were safely in space, you know, I, I raised my seat and kind of unstrapped and I looked out the front, took the opportunity to look out the front window. And we were going over the European continent and, or, and, and I looked out in front of us and I saw this big island. And at least that's what I thought it was. And uh, so I was kind of mesmerized by this big island and I was a little bit confused. And uh, then I realized it was the continent of Africa. And uh, and all of a sudden, I found that I was totally unprepared for this part of the of the flight. I, this was emotional. Mm. And uh, and I looked down on the continent, you know, the, the Mediterranean coast that went into the Sahara Desert that went into the equatorial parts of Africa. 
And I couldn't tell one country from the other because there were no borders, there were no boundaries. All that geography that I had studied, there was nothing down there to tell me anything at all about the, the divisions in Africa. It was just one big continent. And, and I, I wept. I mean, I, I literally cried. Um, because I was just overwhelmed, you know, that, uh, I thought I was all prepared. And I looked down there and, and here it was. Um, I wasn't prepared at all for that, uh, overwhelming emotional experience of seeing our planet from that perspective and realizing that, you know, we, what, what are we fighting about? Uh, mm. there are no borders. There are no boundaries. And every single day, uh, it got, it just, became more and more obvious, as other people have said, that we're on this ball. We're all on this spaceship together. Uh, there's one ocean. They're not a lot of, they're, they're not all these different oceans because we're a water planet. And in this one ocean, you've got these bodies of land that stick up and some of them we call continents, other ones we call the mm -hmm. islands and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and some disappear forever as the sea level continues to rise. But, but that just, knocks you, knocks the wind out of you to realize that, man, we're down here fighting about nothing uh, instead of working together to preserve this this incredible planet on which we live. So that's sort of my first fight. And it never got, it never got any different. Every single time I flew, you always had this overwhelming realization that where I come from, I come from that planet, from that place, and we've got to do something to make it the way it ought to be, the way that God intended it, you know, to be. We're still struggling. Yeah. We ain't there yet. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I said we're not there yet. But oh, we're, yeah. We're not there but, yet. But we, yeah, no, but, but we've got to keep working on it. I think that, um, you know, you talked about the Earthrise image as being the spark for the environmental movement. And yeah. I, yeah. I think, you know, from my studies, I've heard people debate that recently. So I'm trying really hard to consider that uh, perspective. Yeah. But, you know, if you do look back over time, we got the Earthrise image in 1968. Two years later, the first Earth Day uh, was established. Yeah. Yeah. The the first, uh, the EPA movement was, or the, I'm sorry, the Earth Day movement was born, the EPA mm -hmm. was established. And I just can't, and they even used the blue marble image yeah, on yeah. the flags for the environmental movement. So it's hard to believe that that, that worldview didn't somehow impact us in a new mm -hmm. way where many of us did decide to to do something to protect this beautiful planet that we finally yeah. reflected on. And I think that the issue is that we normalize to these miracles, right? We normalize mm -hmm. to, we've seen the blue marble of uh, many people today, you know, obviously we're not alive in 1968 and, you know, we wear blue marble shirts and, you know, we see digital images and we see Google earth every single day. And I think we've normalized to that, magic of our planet and if we can somehow shock ourselves back into that awe-inspiring moment then i think you know i think it, it was um jacques Cousteau who said you protect what you love i think many people have said it uh, over time but that's something that i'm really trying to get at is how can we help ourselves fall in love with life with the planet <laughs> Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons that people like me, um, who are now just 
enthused about trying to get more and more people an opportunity to go to space. Um, whether it's in a suborbital flight in Virgin Galactic or something where you just go up and come back down, where you have 20 minutes of weightlessness, but, but you have an opportunity to look across our atmosphere and see how thin it, it is, uh, look at the beautiful colors of our ocean. Um, those things are life-changing. And, and I don't think you'll look at the planet ever again the way you did before that. So I think, uh, once again, you and I had this conversation way earlier, but, but space and science and exploration have this unifying effect. Mm-hmm. And, and looking at our planet from that perspective causes people who may not have even gotten along before that. <laughs> I remember when my last flight was the, I commanded the first joint Russian-American mission. And it was, it was not something I wanted to do. I remember when, when I was asked... Uh, <laughs> If I'd like to go, I was at NASA headquarters at the time, serving as the assistant deputy administrator, a big, big administrative job. And, uh, and, and they came in and said, hey, we'd like for you to go back to Houston to fly another, another shuttle mission. And I said, ooh, that'd be great. Is it the Hubble mission? Because we had not flown the first Hubble servicing mission yet. And I really, being connected with leaving Hubble up there kind of broken, <laughs> and I wanted to be, be on the crew to go back and mm-hmm. fix it. They said, no, unfortunately, we have already picked that crew. I said, okay, what is it? And they said, well, we, um, we want to fly a flight with uh, a Russian cosmonaut. And I said, forget it. I don't want to fly with any damn Russian. I said, I trained all my life to kill them, and they trained to kill me. And I, I have no desire to fly with any damn Russian. I mean, I just <laughs> said that bluntly. And my, uh, the guy that had hired me to come into the astronaut office, a guy named George Abbey, he said, look, calm down. <laughs> he said, uh, two guys are in town, Sergei Krikalov and Vladimir Titov, and they're, they're going to have dinner tonight over at Friends of Ours. And um, why don't you just go to dinner and, and talk and then come back and let me know what you think tomorrow. And so I said, OK, I'll, I'll go, but I, I'm not interested in this. I, you know, I'll just stay here as much as I hated Washington at the time. So I went to dinner and um, it, John David and Donna Bartow were the, were the hosts. And uh, John David and I had been in the astronaut office together when he was a, a payload specialist, you know, a really smart guy who was there just to fly a particular mission. And uh, Vladimir and, and, uh, and Sergei came in and Sergei was this young, really strapping looking uh, engineer, not, a, not, a, not a, pilot, a test pilot at all, not a military mm. person, but a civilian pilot who was a Russian aerobatics champion. And at the time he had flown, he had been in space for 10 months over the period of time after the Soviet Union disintegrated. So he left, he left Earth as a citizen of the Soviet Union, came back to Earth as a citizen of Russia. His hometown when he left was Leningrad. When he came back, it was it, its name had returned to St. Petersburg. Wow. And uh, Vladimir Titov, who spoke no English, uh, was a Russian fighter pilot. He was the classical guy, and wow. he, he was a MiG MiG pilot. And uh, but he had flown 366 days, one flight on the international on on the Russian space station Mir. And so I had these two incredibly talented, uh, experienced Russian cosmonauts, and and the conversation immediately went to our families. And uh, yeah. and so for the rest of the night, we sat around drinking wine and talking about the world and how we wished it could be mm. and how we wanted it to be for our kids because Vladimir had uh, two kids uh, Marina his daughter was 16 his son Yuri was 8 uh Sergey had a daughter who was 4 uh my son and daughter were 
Well, by then, I think my son was already, you know, on his way to the Naval, was getting ready to graduate from high school. And my daughter was getting ready to come into high school. So, so all three of us wanted this better world for our kids. And that's what we talked about all night long. Wow. And I went in the next morning and I said, okay, I give, uh, I, I'm ready. I'll take it. I said, I'm all in. And, uh, and we established lifelong friendships and we communicate even, even to this day. And we, the good thing is Sergey and I have had an opportunity to work together throughout my entire time as the NASA administrator, because he came back to the Russian space agency and today runs their human spaceflight program. So, um, and if I'm not, mis- was, if okay. I'm not mistaken, didn't he present to you the friendship award? Yeah. Yeah. At so IAC. You, I forgot you were there. So yeah. that was, that was Sergey Krikalov. Yeah. That was a beautiful moment. I was not expecting any of it that. It was, it was, it was really special. Wow. Even if it did come from Putin. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I wondered <laughs> how that must have felt. <laughs> it was okay. Yeah. Well, it, it was the, the thing was, it was, it was the point of the, the purpose of the award or, or of the medal. And it was for promoting uh, international friendship and cooperation. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was beautiful to watch. Yeah. So in, in thinking about, um, your experience in space and looking out at the beauty and not being at all emotionally prepared for that. Is there, <laughs> is there some kind of a uh, parallel experience that you've had on earth that compares oh. in any way? No, not that I can think of. None. I, you know, I don't, um, you know, there's nothing in my life that I have done next to childbearing. And I didn't, I didn't do the work. My wife did. I mean, you know, <laughs> having a child is one of these things that you're emotionally, I wasn't ready for again. So I would say probably um, realizing that I am now responsible for this life. Um, that's a, that's a pretty challenging, daunting thing when you recognize the fact that, holy jeez, uh, I'm, I'm responsible for this. I, I participated in making this thing. So I got to get it right. But, but I don't, I can't think of anything that was um, uh, just as mesmerizing as looking at the planet from from that vantage point. And and like I said, it's not a one time thing because I, you know, I thought that okay after the first flight, when you come back, it'll be different the next time. And and it never it never gets old. Every day, the sunrise and the sunsets, and you see sixteen of them every day. Mm. So, so the sun rises and sets, rises and sets, rises and sets 16 times every normal Earth day. And everyone is just as beautiful as the one before. And they're all different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, however many times you go to space and however many sunrises and sunsets you see, there's never one that's like the one before. And, and that's absolutely incredible also. Wow. So you you talked about something at IAC, which is why I reached out to you. It was the, mm-hmm. the quote mm-hmm. that I shared with you. Um, you said, let me see if I can actually find it. Cause I've, I've listed yeah, it. Yeah. I was going to say, help me out. Cause I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> the gist of it. I can definitely tell you was that we need more storytellers. We need more oh, artists yeah. to tell that our story. I yep. I yeah. remember that well, because I still say that. Yeah. Can you speak to that yeah. a little bit? I can. And it's, um, I, I try to speak with some 
uh, eloquent is not the right word. I try to speak with some level of intelligence about what I experience. I'm not really good uh, at telling the story. It's a story to be told about the beauty of earth, about the magnificence of, of life itself, about the beauty of the planet and everything. And that's why I believe some of the key people that we need um, come from that part of the world, you know, the professional world whose job or whose, whose talent is to tell stories, mm. whether they be in art or verbally or in a book, you know, through, a, through writing it or whatever. There are people who are much more talented at, at portraying experiences that they've had than I am or that most of my friends who are engineers and scientists are. We, you know, we're just, we're not real good at it. Hmm. Uh, some, are, some, some people are pretty good. You know, Nicole Stott, but Nicole is, um, Nicole's an artist. And Nicole tells the story now in, in her art. Alan Bean was absolutely incredible yeah. in his time on this planet because he found that he had this gift, uh, this artistic gift. In, and so he told his story again in art he some of the colors that he that he was able to reproduce on canvas mm. uh, were things that that people had never seen before because mm -hmm. he wanted to show people how the surface of the moon was not gray it's not just just monolithic gray it's got all kinds of colors in it he traveled the world went to the louvre and talked to famous artists and everything trying to figure out how do i how do i get a paint that has all these colors in it wow. and, and how he did it nobody knows but that was that's what's unique about the artwork of of alan shepherd and there are other people who who do things and frequently we don't find out about it until later yeah. uh unfortunately like alan would say before he died he said you know I, there's so much i got to do so many stories i got to tell and i don't have enough time and that, that, i remember my last conversation with him i had wanted him to come to the naval academy and and participate in a panel where we, we do something called the uh, astronaut convocation every spring to try to get the midshipmen excited about the space program and about, you know, being an explorer and all that. And although he's not a great, he's a UT grad, University of Texas. That's mm. So uh, he said, you know, I'm not a Naval Academy graduate. I said, Alan, I know that, but but you walked on the moon. Yeah. And and we really want to, uh, this was this was the 40th anniversary. And we wow. really wanted to honor the the moonwalkers, and I said nothing would be would make me feel better than to than to have you come back and and tell your story because you do it so well. And he said, you know, I would I would be honored to do that, but I can't. He said, I I don't have a lot of time left, oh. and I've got I've got too many other things I want I want to get down on the canvas, and and wow. that was the year he died. So, uh, mm. and I remember that conversation with him. I cherish it all the time. I, I actually I had the great pleasure of meeting another Al, um, Al Warden. Warden, oh, yeah. Before he passed, yeah. and, and he read the most beautiful poem. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Nicole Stott, Leland Melvin, Anush Ansari, and Ron Guerin started this, this group called Constellation. And, uh, oh my gosh, it was so beautiful. They had a... Um, a gorgeous party under Space Shuttle Atlantis at KSC, Kennedy Space yeah. Center. Yeah. Um, on the night of the 50th anniversary of the blue, the blue marble image. I can't remember. Yeah. It was, you know, was it Christmas Eve? It was Christmas right. Eve. It was yeah. Christmas Eve night. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. one of the best ways I could have spent that night. And Al got up there and, and he read a poem. And that's, 
that's the night where it really hit me what my mission was. To be completely honest with you, it was it was that night I met, yeah. you know, all those folks who I've remained in touch with. And uh, Nicole just had her on the podcast right before you. She's she's just yeah. so yeah. wonderful. Um, she's awesome. I love her so much. So what they reminded me was that in in 1968, Frank Borman returned from the Apollo 8 mission. Yeah. And someone asked him, a reporter asked him, what was your experience like? And just like you, he said, I I was not equipped for that. Yeah. I, I don't have the language for that. He said, we should have sent poets because yeah. we're engineers, we're test yeah. pilots. We can't describe the grandeur that we saw. And so I've taken it upon myself to try to coalesce or bring together a community of poets, which are, you know, musicians and artists yeah. of all variety to try to help tell this story. And um, there are just two last things that I'd like to um, get your thoughts on. One of them is that you did, you actually did apply your amazing skills. You even competed against uh, professional actors, I understand, <laughs> oh. <laughs> to yeah. to help tell this story uh, yeah. in an experiential way yeah. that is really mind blowing. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Would you like to talk about oh, that yeah, shuttle, shuttle launch experience? Yeah, tell yeah. me. I um, you know, I when I, in fact, it was before. I think I had I had flown once, and um, and I was on the board of the original board of the what became Space Center Houston at down in, in Houston at the Johnson Space Center. And uh, we were looking for a, uh, I know which one you're talking about, this is not it. <laughs> I'll tell you how I got there. Okay. But uh, but we were looking for help in building this thing or in, in envisioning it. And we, um, we learned about a guy by the name of um, Bob Rogers, who is, um, his company is now called Imagineering. And yeah. he had been an executive at, uh, at Disney and he kind of split off from Disney and formed his own company, BRC. And uh, so Bob was hired to produce our our um, premiere movie that was going to be the, you know, the hallmark to tell the story of Space Center Houston. And it was To Be an Astronaut was the name of the movie. Wow. And it was about this, this uh, you know, this guy on a mountaintop who's looking at the stars and dreams of being an astronaut and and he applies and uh and he's selected and then it kind of goes through his training and everything and so eileen collins was new in the office at the time you know mm. she was she was not yet the first woman to command a, a space shuttle or to pilot a shuttle but uh, but as a veteran i had the rookie eileen collins with me in the in the <laughs> simulator going through this flight and uh, so i had done well enough with bob back then that he remembered it. And he called me one day and he said, Hey, I'm, I've been hired to do this thing at, at uh, the Kennedy Space Center called the shuttle launch experience. And he said, I'd like, I'd like to have you do it, work it with me. Uh, I said, sure, Bob, I'll do anything you want. He said, <laughs> one catch. He said, you really, you got to audition. He said, because I'm not picking it. He said, they have a selection committee and, you know, in Houston and, and we've got a, We've got to get several candidates and we're going to send them the, you know, the, the trial, the tryout, whatever they call it. And so you got to come out to California and it's going to be a, going to be several weeks. We'll bring you out, you know, to kind of get the hang of, of filming and all this stuff. And 
And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done because it, anybody who thinks that, you know, movie acting and movie making is easy, that's mm. not the case at all. I mean, the, <laughs> they're just boom, boom, boom. Mm. It's just, they got to get it right. Got to get it right. And you think you've done well and it's not good enough. <laughs> um, so I went through that and, uh, and, and my, whatever they call it, your test or whatever, it got packaged up with everything else. And Bob called one day and said, Hey, I got some, depending on how you look at it, I got some great news. I said, what's that? He said, well, they really like what you did. And so would, are you still willing to come out and, uh, and do this thing called the shuttle launch experience with me? And I thought the audition was hard. I mean, going through this thing for a week or two with Bob Rogers out in studio city, uh, was unbelievable, but it turned out to be a lot of fun. Uh, hard work, but but that's what is now the shuttle launch experience. And I tell them they need to get a new one. Uh, they need to get that old guy out of there. <laughs> oh, I but love I, it. I, I love doing it. It was a lot of fun. And um, and we they they invited all of us when they opened it when they premiered the you know the the new visitor center. Mm. Um, they brought all as many astronauts who wanted to come with their families down. So we got an opportunity to see it, and that was the first time I had seen it with all of my my peers and everything and it was embarrassing because uh, <laughs> they didn't know I was going to be in it and everything you know? oh so my, my wife is there going no that's so funny. but it was it was a lot of fun to do that yeah that it was really cool I I only just did it recently I I don't yeah. know how I'd never I think there was always a long line and I just had a yeah an opportunity oh, yeah. recently yeah. and I was like Wow, this is amazing. This is the kind of experiential yeah. thing that I'd been looking for. When those doors of the shuttle open up oh, to yeah. the heavens, ugh. It's emotional. It's it, it is very emotional. Very. Yeah. And it and it's um the other thing that I found, you know, you asked me if there was anything else that was as emotional as is going to space. Not really, but uh pretty close is going through the preparation to get into the, you know, into the mock up when they uh when you come out of the you've been through this thing and then you go up and you stand in front of the door and it opens and you're right there nose to you know beak to beak with Atlantis and I mean I just cried like a baby I <laughs> just cried. because that was that was the first time I had seen seen it completed and it mm. was that was pretty emotional yeah. I cry every time I go through those stories I know I, what you're talking about I'm a big cry baby yeah, uh, yeah. I a, am too I'm, I'm a big cry baby. I don't know what that's about, but it. I think it's a yeah. good thing. <laughs> We're well, my dad taught me to cry, so that's all. Ah. Yeah, I think my dad taught me to cry as well. He taught me to be yeah. emotional and feel that fully. Yep. He said it's pretty important. You know, you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you don't go, you don't move through those emotions, then where does it all go? It's definitely still there. Yeah. Um, okay, so I know I've taken a lot of your time and you're with your family and I don't want to keep you much longer, but um, I have one, I have, I have just a couple last questions. It's kind of, we'll treat it kind of mm -hmm. like a lightning round if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. So I've been dying to know, what did it feel like the day that you got the news that you found out that you were unanimous, unanimously voted by Congress to be yeah. NASA's administrator? Uh, <laughs> I didn't really know what I was getting into. So, so <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to say what it felt. I was, um, I was just taken aback, to be quite honest. It, I did not realize the, the magnitude of what it would be like when you, mm. well, first of all, was sitting in front of the 
the committee for the hearing. Mm. Uh, but then coming out at the end of the day, thinking that you were going to go through weeks of being vetted and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, they did it like boom, boom, boom. Um, that was, that, that was, I don't know. I was pretty proud from, because my family was there. I, I had family who had come from all over the country, uh, because for them, it was, uh, it was a really big deal. So, I mean, it was like a shuttle launch almost, you know, when, whenever I, I flew, I, I remember my first flight, I had 13 buses of, of family and friends. Oh, and, uh, wow. Oh yeah. That's oh yeah. Amazing. You could do it back, back then. Thir- 13 buses with the family, with the Bolden family guests. And this time wow. I didn't have 13 buses, but, but I had, um, almost all of my living relatives came, uh, came in and, uh, to be in the gallery for, for my hearing. And so that was, a, that was pretty special that they could also be there to get mm. the, the word that I had been, that I had been voted in and accepted. So that was a pretty big deal. That's amazing. Okay, mm-hmm. so lightning round officially begins. What book do you often gift to people, if any? Oh, I don't. I I don't. You know, I don't give books, but I do send people now audible books. Ah. And uh, so I have shared with them um, uh, on becoming. Uh, I love Michelle Obama's book. Mm. Uh, it it means a lot to me. Uh, I'm a big fan of John Meacham and, uh, he has one, I think it's called the soul of America or some, something like that. But it talks about, um, it talks about the battle for this, for the soul of this country, uh, which is very timely. Uh, I, I actually love, uh, John McCain's book, um, you know, that he wrote just before he passed away. And, um, so I, I try to share those with, with, uh, friends when I, when I finish with them and then. I've read several of Tanehashi Coates' books. He's a black writer hmm. who writes a lot about uh, African American history and culture, and uh, so I, it, it's it's very educational to 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 listen to to the books or read them, if, since that's what I I call it when I'm listening. Hmm. Uh, but it's so I've I've taken to a lot of history slash uh, culture stuff of lately. Uh, on fascism by by Madeleine Albright is absolutely mesmerizing and scary because it is watching what's going on in our country today at the very top mm. um, is it, it it's a book that I think everybody should read because it, it what it does her having grown up under under communism um, she tells about how easy it is to be lulled into this uh, sense of this is this is going to be good and all of a sudden, you know, your world's turned upside down and gone. Mm. But she, it, it, it's a very, very, again, it's a very timely book that, that I wish Americans would, would spend some time reading because we all assume that it can't happen to us and it can't. Madeline uh, Albright. Some, it's, it's called, on, it's called fascism, fascism. Uh, on fascism. Yeah. Got it's it. a long book, but it's really, really good. Got yeah. it. It's really good. Yeah. Thank you. And, and parts of it are just scary mm. because you you see parallels with what's happening today and and you see how people we were talking about this at the very beginning when I said I don't care who you vote for just so you vote uh, although I wonder about some people <laughs> you know what's 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 going on in their brain mm-hmm. uh, and and that's what her book addresses is um, doing things without thinking and without and without thinking about the consequences of of what you're about to do or what you're about to allow someone else to do. 
Mm. Yeah. Got it. Um, all right. So what is a, a typical day in your life? I don't have a typical day. Ah. I, you know, I really don't. The, the one thing that I, do, that I try to do every day is ride my bicycle. Ah. So I'm a, I'm a big bike rider. I used to be an avid runner and I don't run anymore since I had knee surgery back mm. in, wow, 1995 or something like that. <laughs> so I've been riding a bicycle ever since. And so every day I try to get on my bike and I, I'm about a 20, 25 mile a day rider. Wow. So I'll, I'll go ride for an hour and a half, two hours. I'm not fast, but, but I just love getting out and, you know, with nature and, and living in the DC area, going up and down the Mount Vernon, uh, mm. the, you know, the, the, the bike trail or going into DC with all the demonstrations and everything going on. So, uh, you know, I, I'll go South sometimes and then I'll go North. Sometimes I, I ride up the trail and then cross into, into the district and kind of come all the way across the city, uh, start on the East side and, right across going down as close as close as you can get to the white house uh i like to go by black lives matter plaza and and see the crowds and everything and then come out over in georgetown and come back across key bridge and go home wow so, so those are that's the only thing that i try to be a constant in my in my days is well, bike riding. i was going to ask you if you had any um mindfulness or practices or some daily rituals but i would feel like that probably is it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful yeah. And then I, I want to kind of talk about um, quickly, if, if there's anything that you're doing today, I know you're doing a lot of different work right now. Is there anything mm -hmm. that you want to highlight and leave people with? No, I just, uh, I, I'm uh, trying to help, help other people figure out how they let us get this far and get mm -hmm. this bad. So I, I'm trying to help my white friends understand how to fix this problem that they created. You know, people ask me a lot of times, what what should we be doing or what should we? I said, I don't I can't tell you how to undo what you did. Mm. You know, you and a lot of a lot of young white kids like to say, but I didn't do that. You know, that I wasn't even alive. And I said, yeah, but you inherited it so mm. you can fix it. Mm. You know, you're you're in. I know what my ancestors did. We built a nation. Mm. So now you should know what your ancestors did and you should help fix it. I think so, it it, you know, it is obviously up to us, and yeah. it, it is our responsibility. I mean, we have to all do it together. Of course, but, but. but if 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 um if my white friends don't want to, they don't want to. I mean, be serious about making it right. And you know, you look at what's going on in Congress today, and they they're not serious. So, mm -hmm. uh, I yeah, don't know. we're we're it, gonna. It, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Anyway, no, I, just said. I, I was just going to say it comes back to the beginning of what we said. It's going to take grit, perseverance oh, yeah. and extreme determination and an understanding that it, it's going to have to take a lot of time. It's not just going to be a couple of weeks of, you know, demonstrations. Oh, no. That's the awareness part. Now it's time to get, you know, really to work. So um, I'm glad that you brought that up and I will we'll keep doing well, the our encouraging part. thing is, yeah, the encouraging thing is to see the young people who are letting us know white, black, red, it doesn't make any difference They're They're letting us know in no uncertain terms, we have had it mm -hmm. with you mm -hmm. and your generation. And so you guys screwed it up. We're going to, we're going to take it on and fix it. And I, and I think left to their, left to their designs, they, they'll probably do it, but we've got to help them yeah. because they, you know, they, they can't do it alone. They, they could, they could really get us headed down the right path. And then we come back because we're, we're just this way with it. We're just, we're just selfish enough to say, okay, I don't, I don't like that. And so I don't, I don't want to be 
in a place where everybody's equal and all that. Mm. And anybody who anybody who thinks this is when you say it's going to be it's going to be really 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 difficult. And yeah. um, you know the the next administration, whatever it is or whoever it is, is really going to have a a challenge because you've got we've got people who are angry and yeah. they're as angry as I am, but they're they're angry because they feel they're losing power. And and I've got to understand that. I've got to be empathetic. I don't have to be sympathetic at all, mm -hmm. but I do have to be empathetic and understand where they're coming from and try to help them understand that you're not losing anything. We can all, there's enough to go around. And so why don't we figure out how we, you know, how we all share this world and make it even better than we ever believed it could be because we can. But if we don't, if we don't want to do that, it won't happen. It is not going to happen on its own. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely okay. right. Yeah. Well, I'm ready. So that'll that'll be my that'll be my my last little bit. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I no, really thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And you have considered the cosmos. Yes, you, you lived have. Up to your title. <laughs> Already. Look you forward to seeing you in person again. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. One of these oh, days. Oh my yeah. god, I can't wait. I well, let me know if you come down for a launch, and we'll if we I can will. be distant. I sure will. You take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>